But we're going to keep on going through the book of Acts. Uh, and so if you'll turn to Acts chapter 13. I did this in the first service. I forgot my, these glasses, just a second. It's my concession to old age that I'm not used to yet. And like I said in the first service, there's other things stalking me down too. This just happens to be the first one that, uh, that, it, that comes to me. So Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12, we'll be reading this story. And if you're physically able, I'll ask you to stand, if you will, in honor to the Lord's word. And we'll read these uh, 12 verses. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. <clears throat> Excuse me. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, uh, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I'll ask you to pray together with me. <clears throat> Lord, I'm thankful that you have a heart for us as your people, and even those you are calling to yourself who have not yet believed on a, you, you seek us out. We don't have to do any kind of spiritual jumping jacks to get your attention. We don't have to try to make ourselves impressive. We don't have to try to be the smartest people in the room. We just have to realize that, that we need you. You're near and close to all those who are broken in heart. And so I pray that you would help us to be able to live inside of that posture. Lord, in your mercy and in your kindness, you've given us your word to display yourself to us so we know what you're like, to display ourselves to us so we know what we're like, and to show us that you are here for our need. And so, Lord, we ask for your help this morning. Both me as the one speaking and these folks as listening, do your work in us, we pray. It's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> You may have heard uh, or remembered from your past uh, about Ralph Waldo Emerson. He's not the guy from Where's Waldo. This is somebody else. 
probably from your grammar literature classes or whatever, but he was born in the early 1800s, died towards the, in the last quarter of the 1800s, and was a poet and essayist and just kind of a commenter on social life. And he wrote a number of things, and one of those was a, an essay by the name of Self-Reliance. And inside of that essay, Self-Reliance, there were a, a lot of things that he said, some which the Bible would agree with, and other things the Bible would not agree with. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we certainly wouldn't hold him up as somebody that we would follow wholeheartedly. In fact, it's quite likely that the bulk of what he wrote we would disagree with in some measure. But inside of this essay, Self-Reliance, toward the latter part of the essay in the last paragraph or two, he, he is encapsulating something that I'll just summarize. And it is a phrase that says this, all history is biography. All history is biography. And when you start to break that down, it becomes readily apparent that at least in this regard, Emerson was, was fairly accurate. When you survey history, there are events that take place. There's World War II. There's all sorts of other things that maybe you guys can remember at this point that I can't. Things that have happened, events that have taken place. But they all are tied up with the lives of particular individuals, people like us that lived through these difficult things in some cases and great things in other cases. But it's, it's all tied up in the stories of particular people, particular individuals. All of history is biography. Well, much of the same will be presented to us in Acts chapter 13 as we, that we read just a moment ago. And I'll walk through some of those biographies in just a moment. But if we are looking at the book of Acts and you're reflecting, if you've been with us so far or are familiar with the book of Acts, you'll, you'll readily see that Acts 1 through 12 is one segment of the book of Acts. Acts 13 through 28 is a second segment of the book of Acts. And if you just took the whole book and you had time to read through the whole book, it would become readily, obviously apparent that there is a division or a change of pace that takes place at Acts chapter 13, verse 1. What has happened in Acts chapter 1 through 12 is it follows from the resurrection of Jesus. Then the church is birthed in Acts chapter 1. And then Peter becomes the primary leader or the primary spokesman for the church as he preaches primarily, though not exclusively, to the Jews. And if you remember from what Matt and others have preached on over the last several months, somewhere around chapter 8 of Acts, uh, it, there began to be a slight change in which it started to become obvious that the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has died for the sins of all people, that all people can be rescued and redeemed by this Christ, that began to be obvious that it wasn't exclusively for the Jews. And so a transition started to occur. Then when you get to Acts chapter 13, the big picture for the rest of the book of Acts is that Peter recedes as the primary leader and Paul then gains the, uh, the ascendancy. That is, he becomes the primary spokesman. And instead of preaching primarily to the Jews, he preaches primarily to the Gentiles, though not exclusively to the Gentiles. He preaches to them both. And so Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12 particularly, and the stories that follow the rest of Acts chapter 13 and then in, on into Acts chapter 14. It's what I'm going to call a connective hinge story. That is, there's, there's connective tissue at the beginnings of 
chapter 13 that tie into what happened at Acts chapter 1 through 12. And there's connective tissue on the other side that leads forward into Acts chapter 13 through 28. But it is a hinge story. In fact, the first word that I read of Acts chapter 13 verse 1, it starts with the word now. And it's, it's a word that kind of is creating a hinge. That is, we've been talking about the church in Jerusalem. We've been talking about Peter. We've been talking about how the gospel was proclaimed to the Jews. Now, we're turning a corner and we're going to talk about how Paul was the primary leader. The church in Antioch took some, uh, an influential position. And the gospel is going to be primarily preached or presented to the Gentiles. So the now is what creates the change. <clears throat> Excuse me. But let's look at these verses and just kind of walk our way through one by one and uh, see what they have for us. <clears throat> Excuse me. So as I read to you earlier, verse 1, at the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. That is, the church at Jerusalem was the one that was the, 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 the one with all the influence. But when God creates another church, it doesn't leave that church without all of the gifts that it needs. So here at this church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, and then it names some of them for us. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So there's a sense in which these five gentlemen are the leaders of the church, and they're gathered together. This points out for us one of the realities about the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that, and that is that it unifies people. The gospel unifies. Here are these guys, five guys, not to make you guys hungry for lunch, but nonetheless, these five guys... Uh, that we don't know a ton about. Let's just walk through there. Here's Barnabas. If you've read the book of Acts, you'll see that he pops up a couple of times previous to this. And he has a very unique way that he ministers to the church or serves the church. But when you look at his name, it's Barnabas. And I'm, I'm pronouncing it Barnabas because it's easier that way. But it's Barnabas. And that prefix bar means son of. So maybe you've run across somebody who has the last name Johnson or the last name Stevenson or the last name Clarkson. And Johnson means son of John, Stevenson, son of Stephen. What was the last one I said? Clarkson, son of Clark. So these, you know, that has a meaning. And in the same way, when you run through the New Testament, you see this kind of construction pop up a few times. You think about Simon, another name for Peter was Simon, son of Bar-Jonah, which just means he's the son of Jonah. Or when Jesus was on trial and the people asked that Bar-Abbas be released to them. It's the son of Abbas. So now here with Barnabas, his given name was Joseph. But he's son of Nabus, but it means son of encouragement were given in the earlier part of the book of Acts. So the way that he served this church was so encouraging that that became his nickname. And in fact, if you follow his life through the book of Acts, you'll find that very frequently when the church set apart somebody to go to the other churches to encourage them, Barnabas would be in that mix. And they would set aside Barnabas and Saul, or Barnabas and Paul, and send Barnabas, and he would enter, engage with the church, and he would be so encouraging with his, with his words that he became known as the son of encouragement. In fact, when you reflect on Saul in this passage, who is also named Paul, if you remember back in Acts chapter 9, he had been a persecutor of the church. 
And so he had gone around and he was killing Christians. I shouldn't say killing. He was imprisoning Christians and setting them up for persecution. And then all of a sudden he becomes a believer. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I I think I would, if I heard that, I would be a little bit cynical about whether or not he was truly a believer. Maybe, Maybe he's just saying he's a believer so he could show up at church and figure out who we all are, and then he can chase us down a little better. And I'm, I'm sure that there was some of that inside of the early church. But as you read through Acts, Barnabas finds his way to Saul. He finds him. And the next thing you know, Saul's now on the scene and he's preaching and he's teaching. And it had a lot to do with Barnabas, the son of encouragement, showing up in the life of Saul, who becomes Paul, and encouraging him in the faith and bringing him forward and growing him in the Lord so that he's an effective instrument in God's hands. Acts chapter 13, about verse 8, we read that there was a gentleman by the name of John who also helped them in preaching the word. Well, this guy, John, we saw last week in the book of, in chapter of 12, and it's John Mark, he's given that name. Well, in Acts chapter 13, around verse 8, he's helping them proclaim the word on this missionary journey. Later in the book of Acts, at chapter 13, he departs. He, he just skips town he's he's done and he's gone and so when you go to the end of acts chapter 15 you got paul and barnabas and they're getting ready to take another missionary journey and paul and barnabas have this strong disagreement between each other and it's over john mark this guy that we're reading about in acts 13 and paul is saying no we don't need to take john mark with us because he left us while we were on the last missionary journey and barnabas the encourager says no 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 we need to take john mark And the dissension became so strong that Paul and Barnabas actually split and went on different missionary journeys. Paul took Silas, Barnabas somehow linked up with John Mark. Interestingly, you get to the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy. He's in prison and he's at, at the end of his life and he writes and says, send John Mark to me because he's profitable to me. So somehow in Barnabas, Barnabas's interaction with John Mark, it became clear. Somehow he built him up in the face so that John Mark became a a helpful believer. So we know most about Barnabas in this list of these five guys. But the next one, Simeon, who was called Niger, that's it. There's nothing else in, in the word about this guy. The only descriptor we have is that he was called Niger, and Niger is the Latin word for black, so he was either black or dark-complected. That was his, his nationality. But beyond that, we know nothing. The next guy, Lucius of Cyrene. Here's another guy we know nothing about. What we do know is that Cyrene was located in Libya, so it's in northern Africa. The next guy was named Manaean. And the descriptor of him was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, now it's called Herod the Tetrarch to distinguish him from the Herod that showed up in Acts chapter 12. And if you remember chapter 12, there was this guy named Herod who, who killed James, who was the disciple. In the early part of chapter 12, at the end of chapter 12, he himself died because he exalted himself against God. Well, this Herod the Tetrarch was not that Herod of chapter 12. But the Herod the Tetrarch in chapter 13 was the son of the Herod back in Mark who arrested John the Baptist and then later had John the Baptist beheaded. So we've got this guy, Manaean, who was a lifelong friend 
of the son of the guy who killed the cousin of Jesus. Interesting. And then we have last here, Saul, who later becomes Paul, the persecutor of the church, who was converted and became the leader of the church there in the early part of the church life. Now, what does all this mean? Well, there's a few things, I think. And one is that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, unites people because all people are equal. All are created equal. All are created in the image of God. And so you have some of these men about which we know some things and other men about which we know very little. But we've got men who are different nationalities, different races, different backgrounds, different upbringings, different capabilities and different abilities. And God takes all of these by his gospel and unifies them together at this church at Antioch so that there is no gradation of any one person over another person, but there's equality across the board. And it reminds us of the good news of Jesus that all men, as I said, are created equal. All are made in the image of God. All have sinned and all have become short, uh, fallen short of God's glory. But as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, there's a righteousness that's available for all. And all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so there's a very clear picture here in Acts chapter 13 verse 1. That God takes all people and merges them together, keeps the, 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 the flavors and the, and the enjoyment of different cultures and the enjoyment of different nationalities, but he places them all together and unifies them behind this gospel that brings people together under the banner of Christ. So the gospel unifies people because we're all equal, but it also makes it readily apparent that the gospel isn't exclusive. And this was difficult for the Jews to, to wrap their head around, as we'll see later in Acts chapter 15. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus, was not going to be, be, be preached just to the Jewish nation. It was for the whole world. And it's very helpful for us if we remember the song that we used to sing when I was a boy. I, I hope that they still sing it. But Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. I don't know if you know that song, but it's a good one to learn. To remind us that we are all together in this, that Jesus is the centralizing, unifying person in what goes on in the church at Antioch and ought to go on in our church as well. This is perhaps a good place to say that unless the church recaptures that and understands that, our nation is probably in bad shape. Because unless we realize that there is no difference, that all who call upon the name of the Lord can be saved, then our nation is in peril. And so the church ought to be the place where it becomes most apparent that every race, every nationality, every person of every background can get together and have unity through what Jesus has done. It might be useful here to say also that the, the America is not the hope of the gospel. That the gospel is the hope of America. And that there is no thing outside of the gospel that can save America or lift it up. And so there may come a day when America turns its back on God. And we're probably good ways down that road. And it's quite possible that the light could be extinguished from the U.S. 
just as it has happened in countries all across the globe down through history. And if you had the time and had the initiative, you could track that down through history and see how God blessed a nation because they followed the Lord and then the light was extinguished because they forgot to follow the Lord. But what I would say is that though the, a nation may fail and a country may cease to exist, the gospel does not stumble. The light of the gospel just changes places. So if it goes out today in the U.S., it will light up again somewhere in Latin America or it will light up somewhere in Baghdad or it will light up somewhere in Moscow or it will light up somewhere in Beijing. The gospel will become unimpeded. It is not the American gospel. It's the gospel. Of, it's God's gospel and it's God's gospel to the world. And so the church in Antioch is, is playing this out. There was a church at Jerusalem primarily to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, but then this church at Antioch was planted and the gospel went forth. And so if we're to take this story from Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12, the first part would be the gospel unites people, unifies people. But it doesn't just unify people, it unifies purpose. And so you see it, chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And so it's in the middle of their worship, in the middle of their praying, that, that the Spirit indicates to them that they should set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work to which they have been called. I think it's significant that it's in the middle of their normal worship that God speaks. We're not particularly given how the Spirit indicated this to them. It doesn't necessarily say that it was a verbal instruction. It doesn't say how they came to understand that. But there's a sense in which we understand what, what it is saying there. And I'll just illustrate with our own church. So you have Jason and Kate and several other families who feel the burden of planting a church at Burgall. And so we begin to pray about that and we talk with Jason and we hear his burden for what's going on in Burgall. And you see his, his, his built the way the Lord has made him. And, and you hear his compassion for the rural areas of America. And, and then this opportunity to plant a church comes up and there's just this general sense that this is what the Spirit of God is doing, that, that yes, this is right, this is what needs to happen. And so in a couple of months, we'll gather around Jason and Kate and the other families that are going and we'll lay our hands on them and there's no uh, magical power in laying on of hands, but it does create a, a clarity that there's agreement that this is what we see God doing in your life and so that we, this is what we see God doing in the life of the church and we'll send them out with our prayers and we'll hopefully with God's blessing and we'll look to see God do miraculous things with, their, with the church that they're planning. And so in some way God indicated to them that Paul and Silas or Paul and Barnabas should go. And so they had these instructions from the Spirit and God unifies purpose. The gospel unifies purpose. But just like the gospel unifies, the gospel also divides. And so we move then to verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And Cyprus happened to be the place where Barnabas was born. So when they arrived at Salamis, which was the port city there at Cyprus, they proclaimed the word of God to the synagogue of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. So they went to the city and they stopped first at the synagogue and this became the way that they 
went on these missionary journeys. They would always stop at the synagogue, hopefully finding people who were alert to what God had done in the Old Testament, but who would also be uh, um, eager to accept that Jesus was the Messiah in the New Testament. And so they would preach here. And if you follow this through the rest of the book of Acts, 10 times it's going to follow this pattern of preaching in the synagogue. But ultimately what happens is the people in the synagogue reject it. And so then they begin to preach to the Gentiles. So they go uh, down here and they preach to the synagogues. And then at verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, which is on the opposite end of the island, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So we have another biography here. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from faith. So what do we know about Elymas here? First of all, he's trying to confuse the good news about Jesus. And he's called a magician. That's what his name means. Now, we're not, it's not abundantly clear what it means by magician. If you think about the, the three men who came to visit Jesus, the three wise men. I guess it wasn't, doesn't say three, but the wise men who came to visit Jesus, it's the same root word that's used here. So maybe they were, maybe they did some kind of tricks or, or false miracles or whatever to impress Sergius Paulus. Or maybe he was just a super intelligent man who tried to use his intelligence to confuse the, the reality of the gospel. It's not really clear to us, but he's called a magician. Then it says that he's Jewish. So he has some background. He at least ought to have known that a Messiah was coming. He would have heard this in his life. But then it declares him a false prophet. So whatever Paul and Barnabas were saying that was, that was right and good, this guy Elymas was coming against them and, and saying false things about it. Now he's called Bar-Jesus. He's not connected with Jesus, the Messiah of the New Testament. Jesus was a common name at the time and it was came from the old testament name joshua and it meant salvation so son of salvation but that was his name bar jesus and it has bearing here in just a few moments so then we have sergius paulus who was described as an intelligent man he was a proconsul, so he's part of the government of the area and this guy had heard what was going on in the synagogue and so he calls for paul and barnabas and he wants to hear the word of god and so he asks about it, and they begin to explain. And then Elymas, it says in verse 8, opposed them. And it doesn't clarify for us how he opposed them, but it does tell us that he sought to turn uh, Sergius Paulus away from the faith. And so then you go to verse 9 of 13, and it says, But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil. Well, his name was Bar-Jesus, right? Son of salvation. And Paul says, no, you are not the son of salvation. You're the son of the devil. Well, let's keep reading. It says, uh, verse 10, and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? I, I haven't read the whole book of how to win friends and influence people, but that part isn't in there in what I've read so far. I doubt this is the way that we want to set up our evangelism, trying to reach other people, that you're the enemy of righteousness, you're the son of the devil. And 
and so on. But there is something about the gospel that makes a clear division. And it's important for us to pay close attention to how, when the gospel is preached, how those who speak the gospel, who share the gospel, interact with those who are not believers. In a couple of weeks, we'll make our way to Acts chapter 17. And in Acts chapter 17, Paul comes upon a group of people who simply do not understand anything about Jesus. They've got no idea. And he doesn't come to them and say, you're the son of the devil. You're the enemy of righteousness. He speaks to them gently and leads them along. And it's always true inside of the New Testament. When you come to people who are questioning or wondering, they're always met with kindness and answers. The ones who are met harshly are the self-important, self-righteous people who do not think that they need a Christ. And those are the ones who are challenged very strongly. So it's important as we share the gospel with people that we not take up Paul's mantra here and decide that this is how we're going to reach people with, with the good news of Jesus. We do need to speak with kindness and explanations. But it is also true that when people are opposing the gospel and actively trying to confuse it, that there is a time for confrontation. So Paul confronts them confronts this guy Elymas and he says to this guy all right you're going to be walking in blindness for a period of time now we're not given any insight at all as to why Paul said okay you're going to be blind for a little while but it doesn't take much of a leap to work our way back to Acts chapter 9 and remember that Paul's going along the road and Jesus interrupts with this light and says, it's hard for you to, to resist my reach of grace to you. And as a result, you're going to be in darkness. And so Paul is in his darkness. He's in blindness. And during his time of blindness, he realizes that Christ is the light. And so he turns his life over to Christ. And I would think that Paul is hopeful for this for Elymas as well. That somehow in the darkness, despite what Elymas has done, somehow in his blindness, he'll realize that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the light, and that he'll in turn turn his life over to Jesus. Interestingly, it tells us at the end of this section that he immediately he went blind. He tried to get people to lead him around. But then at verse 12, it says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And I think that's a very important turn of phrase there. That he saw what happened. But it doesn't say that he was astonished that Elymas went blind. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Elymas going blind was a sign. But it wasn't the reality. It was pointing towards something else. If we were to take a trip and we were leaving out of Raleigh, headed down I-40, and we're coming down to Wilmington, and we want to get to Wrightsville Beach, somewhere along there, I'm sure there's a sign that says Wrightsville Beach, X number of miles. We'll make this up since I don't know where one is. Let's say there's a sign that says Wrightsville Beach, 30 miles. It would be a curious thing indeed if you stopped at this sign, regardless of how fancy the sign is, let's just say that this sign that announces Wrightsville Beach is 30 miles ahead. It's got LED lights on it, even has some high-definition pictures of the waves crashing on the shore. 
We'll even give it some surround sound so that you're hearing the waves crash and you're hearing the birds screech as they go overhead. And it's, for the world, it sounds and looks like the beach. And so you stop your car there at this sign, 30 miles away from Wrightsville Beach, and you get your lawn chair out of the car and you get your picnic basket and you get your snorkel and you get your flippers and you come and you just sit there and look at the sign. What a beautiful sign. And the rest of us won't be saying, knucklehead, that sign's just pointing you to the real thing. Get in your car and go 30 more miles. Unfortunately, sometimes as people, we're like this with the signs that we see around us. We mistake the sign as the important thing. When the important thing is what it's pointing to, it's not that we stop at the signs. And however, whatever signs God may give, and it's his prerogative to give those signs. And maybe it's a healing that was unexpected. Maybe it's that you heard uh, uh, some preaching in the, let's just, let me phrase it differently. Let's say you, you read a verse in the morning, then you're riding down the road later in the day, and you hear that verse again, and you think, oh, the Lord must be speaking through that verse. And, and that is a sign. And so, but we can't get locked up by just looking at the signs. Go to the real thing. Go to the living water. And so we have to make our way past the sign towards the real thing. And that's what Sergius Paulus did. He saw the sign, but he was astonished by the teaching. The book of John lays this out for us quite clearly. If you're able to read the book of John from John 1 through the end of the book, chapter 21, at one sitting, you'll see this kind of rise to the top. So John chapter 2, when Jesus performs his first miracle, he turns the water into wine. And at the end of that description of the miracle, there's an explanation of what the miracle was meant to intend. And it says, Jesus did this sign to reveal that he was the Christ, the Messiah. And then you read through the book of John and seven or eight more times it says, this was a sign, this was a sign, this was a sign. And you get to the end of the book of John and it says, a lot of other things Jesus did, a lot of other signs he did that I haven't told you about, but these were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the point of the signs, to move us not to sign to sign to sign, but to move us all the way through till we see that Christ is the answer, that he is the reality that we seek. So it was the teaching of the word that astonished Sergius Paulus. So let me refer again to Ralph Waldo Emerson. All history comes down to this. History is biography. But the reality is, all of history is the bi biography of one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody has to evaluate their own life in light of this one life, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that led up to him, everything that came after him, always points to this. What will we do with Jesus? Because when it comes to Jesus, it's not Jesus and Elemis, or Jesus and magicians, or Jesus and the wise words. It's either or. You either have Jesus or you have Elemis, but you cannot have both. The gospel is uniting for those who are broken and feel their, their discontent with their sins and who need a Savior and need a Redeemer. That unites us together. But the either-or nature of you either believe or you do not is divisive. I'm reading the words of Fairly Familiar by C.S. Lewis that he penned in his book, Mere Christianity, where he says this. 
I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. C.S. Lewis is on point. Jesus doesn't leave that open to us. Ralph Waldo Emerson in his essay, Self-Reliance, advocates for self-dependence, self-sufficiency, finding all of our strength inside of us and making our way in this world. The gospel says, no man can save themselves, but Christ will save anyone who comes. You can either be a self-reliant person or you can be a Christ-reliant person, but you can't be both a self-reliant person and a Christ-reliant person. All of history is biography. The biography of Jesus who died for sinners and who is willing to save any and all who come to him. I'll ask you, if you will, to pray together with me as we prepare to sing another song. Lord, when we're broken, hearing that there's someone who will rescue us is good news indeed. When we think we've got reserves of strength and that we don't need a Savior, it becomes offensive to us because it challenges our, our capacities. So, Lord, I pray that you would deliver us from our self-reliance. Help us look to the Christ, who is the Redeemer of all people, who will call on him. And ask that you would help us uh, to live in a way that reveals our dependence on you and also is one lived in such a way that it brings hope to those who also need that kind of hope. And I ask this in Jesus' name.